When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Coming up on this week's show, how to emulate Nintendo's biggest failure. The return of physical media. And we chat to YouTube and indie game legend, John Riggs. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books I highly recommend, Neo Geo, A Visual History. Now, if like me, you used to drool over the Neo Geo when you were a kid, from art of fighting to world heroes, Samurai Showdown, Metal Slug, SNK's classic games are all here and presented in gorgeous detail. You can check that out, Neo Geo, A Visual History, and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCB Way. Now, if you're working on anything retro at the moment, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service. You know, they do low cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they offer services like 3D printing, injection molding, and lots more. And of course, you'll know that PCB Way are massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now on their website at PCBWay.com. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 418, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast, of course, the show that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games, exploring old consoles, classic computers, arcades, and of course, bringing it up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days, along with a veteran of the industry on the podcast for a bit of a chat in the second half of the show. And here we are over eight years of doing this podcast now, and it just feels like, you know, it does feel like it's just got to a stage where there is actually more and more news to talk about every single week, particularly in the realm of indie development at the moment. You know, we've talked about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, You're actually at an Indie Games Award in Nottingham a couple of weeks ago, Ravi. And uh, that was what you were hanging out with this week's special guest, who I'm sure many of our audience will be familiar with, because he's a very famous YouTuber. This is Mr. John Riggs who's going to be joining us this week. Yeah, I I think the whole indie game scene at the moment is, is really amazing. I love some of the titles that have come out. And you know, this whole scene didn't exist years ago. Yeah. Um, Now it's it's become something solid, but also a lot of the kind of retro titles are getting put in there, new concepts, new ideas. And it's like a kind of platform or a, a, like a, a playground for them to shine in. You know, it's mad to think because I do remember that era in the 90s when we got to around, you know, 95, 96, when like, you know, the Amiga was fading away. Obviously, it had stuff like the uh, the Net Eurosi on the PS1. But really, it felt like for a time in the late 90s to early 2000s, when like the homebrew scene didn't really exist like it does now, you know, before we all had the internet, it felt like the games industry was a bit inaccessible to those, you know, what were formerly kind of bedroom coders. It wasn't really that era around that. Well, trends come in and completely destroy and take over stuff. You know, there was that huge thing to go 3D. Everything had to go 3D. Every single title had 3D. And then 
there's been VR recently, you know, and I think it's AI at the moment. But um, yeah, yeah, these kind of trends come around, and and a lot of really good stuff gets forgotten about or, or isn't that popular and kind of gets pushed away. So it's great that they're getting highlighted now. Well, last week on the show, of course, we were chatting to um, Ali Matisi, who um, uh, leads the Out of the Bit studio, and of course, they're doing incredible indie games. And this week, kind of a bit of a follow-on exploring some more indie games as well. And uh, we're going to be talking about YouTube too with John Riggs, because um, he's got a really interesting career. And uh, Joe and I did this interview, and I do say this to John in the interview, I've got no idea when he sleeps. Yeah, because he's a radio DJ and journalist by day. Yeah. And then his YouTube channel, he pretty much puts out a video. I mean, this month he's put out, I think it's the 27th of uh, February at the day of recording. And he's put 24 videos out this month yeah. already. That's every probably, week day then. Yeah, yeah my yeah. entire channel. <laughs> yeah. If he's been on YouTube for 15 yeah. years, he's not done that many. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as well as that, he's also put out a book about cereal. And then obviously one of the biggest things we speak about in this interview is his indie game development and his involvement in the indie scene as well as homebrewing and on top of that he's a father so i don't know yeah. when he sleeps <laughs> <laughs> now jay you speaking as a dad i know how tired you are when you get home from work and you've got to get the kids to bed and stuff I, it's like i struggle with yeah. you know just full-time work and then this on the side which you know for me you know it is only a couple of hours you know two nights a week really you know, three, four hours, kind of two nights a week. And it, I, and that's it. That's all yeah. my time gone, you know, other than kind of hanging out with my daughter. So yeah, hats off to John, man. And his passion really, really comes across in the interview. You know, he's so enthusiastic and positive about everything, you know, and about everything he works on and everything in that scene as well and everything in the retro community. Um, really, really big personality. And yeah, really loved this interview. And it was nice to be back on one because of, I've not been on a while, one in a while with uh, us posting out the book and stuff like that. We, we just so put Joe in. in a room yeah, and like, back forced in. him to <laughs> <laughs> come out when you're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was great to have you on this one as well because I know you've been a big fan of John on, on YouTube mm. for many years now, haven't you? You started watching him when uh, he's on Metal Jesus' channel, wasn't he? Yeah. Years yeah, he was originally, uh, you know, he was friends with Jason Metal Jesus and, you know, he invited him on his channel and, uh, you know, John did a few shows with him and then, you know, it kind of grew from there. So, yeah, really cool to catch up with him and have a chat with him. And uh, he listens to the show as well, which was fantastic. Yeah, so nice thanks for coming on, John. Yeah, so really interesting chat. We cover so much in uh, about an hour with John. So everything from, like you said, his, his YouTube channel, his community contributions, his love for retro breakfast cereals as well, making games on the NES and the Dreamcast, all of that coming up with our special guest, John Riggs. He's on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, we are into March doesn't feel like it's getting any warmer here in the no. UK, though. A little glimmer of sunshine today, but I think it's still around minus one this I afternoon. I think last week, like, I don't know if people noticed, but we were all ill. Yeah. And uh, I think Dan Dan lost hearing in one ear. <laughs> Which made it very bizarre editing a podcast with one ear. <laughs> yeah. I've got to say. You did a good job. Yeah, yeah so apologies if there's any missing. But the weather's been really hitting us. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we are looking forward to getting into some uh, warmer months and, of course, events and all that coming up again. We'll keep you posted on all of that. But it has been a very busy week in retro over the last seven days. Now, we'll start with a story that um, I know you guys were big Pokemon fans back in the day. I've got to admit the Pokemon kind of craze passed me by. But I know it was absolutely massive. And uh, this, I imagine, would have been a story that would have excited you greatly as a kid, Joe. This is actually a way to create and trade Pokemons using a bit of a hack. Well, 
interestingly, you just said this would have uh, got me excited as a child, but it's really funny that we've seen this. My friend, my good friend Ali, uh, this week has actually just bought two copies of Pokemon and two Game Boys off me right. so he can trade Pokemon to himself. So he's literally sat there at home with Game Boy Advance and a Game Boy Color trading from Pokemon Red and Blue onto Pokemon Yellow so he can get all original. How does that work then? Explain how that works for people like me that haven't played it. Uh, So you originally got, well, in the UK, it's a bit different in Japan because you got three, you got Pokemon Red, Blue and Green. But in the UK, you got Pokemon Red and Blue. Red had so many Pokemon on it and Blue had so many Pokemon on it. And in total, there was 151. But there was like 50, which was on both. And then like, you know, kind of like 30 or so, which was exclusive to blue, and then 30 or so was exclusive to red. Mm. And then there was free starter Pokemon. So obviously when you start your game, you if you pick Squirtle, Charmander, or Bulbasaur, that is your starter Pokemon. You can't catch them in the game. So that creates the situation where if you want all 151 Pokemon, you have to trade Pokemon with other people between the games. That was and, how, and as also well as some, being an RPG, the concept Some people preferred kind of, playing a certain Pokemon as well. Yeah. So, you know, other people would capture them and someone would then trade yeah. with them because, yeah. you know, that 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 I, I was a red and blue guy. Yeah. Uh, but I know but, other people like silver and all of those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, exactly. But, but the bottom line was with the original Pokemon games, when they first came out, it was 151. You, you, you couldn't get all of them on one cartridge. You had to trade with friends from the other versions of Pokemon. That was the bottom line. Um, and did this, it delete them from theirs? Did it like kind of swap? Yeah, yeah, them? no, it was a trade. Right. It was a, it was a full on trade. It wasn't like a copy and paste. Like you know, if Ravi had a copy of blue and I had a copy of red, I traded him my Charmander. That would be gone. It was, it was Ooh. gone off my cartridge. But you'd have to trade it for one of his Pokemon. So the idea is you would trade exclusives with each other. So a Pokemon that's exclusive to one one version of the game to another, if that makes sense. Interesting, and and it's still that's still how you do it to this day. You You've know, got to collect them all, Dan. You know. You've got to collect them all, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's how you do it until today, because there is now a bit of a uh, a cheeky method, a bit of a cheat, a way around this, using something called the Flipper Zero, which uh, Ravi seemed very clued up about when we started talking about this before we started recording. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very very naughty device um, that is also being used in in the retro gaming world to do good things. So, um, you know, Flipper Zeros, it's it's like when you watched a film when you were a kid in the 90s and someone would get out a computer and go, I'm going to hack this, I'm going to hack that. Um, The Mm. Flipper Zeros, like a transceiver. So, you know, it's got infrared on there. It's got an NFC reader. Um, You could do all sorts of stuff, turn it into a universal remote control. You can do opening garden gates, garages, even worse stuff like that as well um, that we won't go into on this podcast. But um, it's a very powerful device and it seems very small and cute. Um, A lot of people have used it as like a little mischief device, you know, um, uh, to do stuff. But now it's started to get a a reputation as a bit of a retro gaming add-on device as well. Um, Raspberry Pi actually released a video game module for the Flipper Zero. So this is a little module that you stick on the top of this little handheld device the flipper and you can then connect it to your television Mm. you can also add in a controller port as well so you can have like a joystick or um, you know a game controller and then you can use the gyroscope inside as well to turn it into a motion 
controller as well. So people have started playing with this device um, and adding extra stuff. They've now added the ability to trade Pokemon on there, which is really cool because um, they did Amiibos previously because, you know, the Amiibo is like an NFC. Yeah. So you could scan the Amiibo, take the digital code off the Amiibo, have it on your flipper, and then use the flipper and store all your Amiibos on there, which is really cool. But this is a kind of older generation now because they've actually got the Game Boy um, cable adapted it and it is going into the flipper. Yeah, so the flipper, for people who haven't seen it, it's a small device, I'd say probably around maybe half the... You remember the old Nokia phones, the kind of little candy stick phones? The size yeah. of one of them, it looks like, doesn't it? Got a little, um, little D-pad on there, a screen with a... Uh, a cute little dolphin who pops up, I imagine, named after Flipper, the famous dolphin. It's a very naughty dolphin, yeah. It seems like it from uh, what this device can do. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're essentially linking it to, in this uh, series of images here, into a Game Boy Color using a link cable. And then you get a little selector on the Flipper Zero where you can go through and pick which Pokemon you want to trade over to your Game Boy from the full selection. You know, I think... This could expand. Um, so, like, the flipper is the ultimate uh, reader and writer, basically. You know, yeah. uh, you're able to do it with NFC. You're able to do it with everything. I can see people starting to get adapters for different carts, um, for different systems that have been offline, and then kind of, you know, creating little devices for it and expanding the retro gaming world. And I'm wondering if, because uh, I'm imagining, you know, Joe does all these retro gaming markets. I'm imagining mm. Joe, they were like one of these, like, uh, who, who do you want on your Game Boy then? Come on, like, dodgy Mac on. Put this cable in. blast to us for a quid. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Honestly, I could, I could see it be, becoming like an EverDrive in a way, um, yeah. attached to a Game Boy cart or something, and then you just um, blast the image onto it or read another cart yeah, whilst or maybe you're there like, and, and, you know, recreate it straight away. Or even like an action replay or a you know, Game Shark, something like that, I imagine. Yeah, you yeah. Use for this, so, yeah, you uh, could use it to to modify the games, I guess. Yeah, so uh, a lot of power packed into a small little device, and uh, great to see it being used for uh, retro uses already. So if you want to check that out and uh, how it works, I will link up that article um, in the show notes along with everything else we talk about. You see the Money Podcast app or head to the website at theretrohour.com. Now, in modern gaming news, I've been seeing it everywhere this week. That apparently Microsoft are going to be announcing a uh, new Xbox at some point this summer. Big rumour is that it will not have an optical drive on there. Um, we heard about the uh, abandonment of physical media by Game, our main game shop. You know, they're moving out of trade-ins and mm. uh, they're doing, when you walk in there now, it's a lot of these kind of just coupon codes, isn't it? Or game cards that you get on the shelf. Everyone's saying physical media is dead. But this could be a reversal of its fortunes. This is a new disc apparently in the form of a typical DVD or a Blu-ray or a CD, that can apparently hold 200 terabytes of information, or that is 1.6 petabytes, if you like. So that's around 2,000 PS5 games. I mean, just just to reflect on what you said there about the physical, the death of the physical media thing, it feels very much that that's like, you know, the big companies that are trying to do that and that, yeah. you know, us as the consumers... Some of us, well, a lot of us are still quite happy with physical media because eBay actually released earlier this week that physical media, so video games, DVDs, etc., was the third best-selling thing for 2023 last year. Right. Yeah, so there's it, still obviously a big market for it. 
I've heard there's been a reversal, yeah, of that, because a lot of people are kind of getting a bit fed up of, you know, streaming platforms, the price is increasing, and the availability, you know, you might be halfway through watching a series and it vanishes. There's also, you know, stuff like some companies have been editing their old TV series and taking mm. bits out that they reckon might be mm. offensive now that some of the original fans wanted in its original form. So I can see that there is definitely a, a market for people who want to own it. And it's weird, though, because I was on um, Threads today, first time mm -hmm. I've gone on Threads for quite a while. And the first thing I saw on there is, you know, this um, this post about the, the Xbox losing its optical drive. And um, a lot of the comments of people were like, oh, I've been fully digital since like 2015. I'm not bothered. And then someone did comment going, yeah, that's all well and good. As long as you realize that you're only renting the games for a limited amount of time. And if the game companies are doing that, surely that should reflect in its price. You know, you can't be charging 65 quid for something they might take offline in five years. That doesn't feel fair. It's, it's interesting that this is in disc format because, yeah. um, uh, you know, lots well, quite a few servers are, are using LTO uh, tapes, which, um, you know, they're, they're basically tape capacity, but they can take a huge amount of data as well. Um, yeah, I, I I think this is interesting that it's going to become a disc because a disc you can print, you can get out there fast. Um, and the cheap? Yeah, it's, it's um, random access as well, where I guess a tape, you know, you've... You've got physical tape. You've got to get get through it, and uh, yeah, I I, I, th I think this sounds interesting. Um, I don't know if I'd ever be able to feel that. Well, that's the things. I mean, this is um, scientists at the University of Shanghai uh, for Science and Technology. They've created this. Um, they call it an ultra capacity optical disc, apparently using three D recording techniques. So you can fit one point six petabytes on there, which is uh, I think a Blu Ray is around one hundred twenty eight gigabytes. Yeah, LTO tape. Um, with compressed is 1.4 petabytes. Yeah. Well, well, they're saying this medium here, it looks like they're really aiming this at enterprise as a backup solution. They're saying that actually it uses a blue laser, very similar to today's Blu-ray, but there's a specialized lens system that focuses on these really thin layers and they kind of stack the disc. Not like you've got like multi-layer DVDs. Yeah. Mm. It kind of works a bit like that. And they reckon that the, the media will last around or at least 10 years. Now I've got some CDRs that I burnt like 25 years ago, you know, when I first got a CD burner, that is still readable today. You, you must have fine. been buying the nice um, CDRs. I had the ones from Asda. <laughs> they lasted yeah, some, about some like one yeah. year. I've got some that have got bit rot and everything, but there are some that have still survived. I think, you know, in terms of, it seems more reliable than magnetic media at least. But the thing about this is they've got this prototype at the moment. They're saying that it handles around 100 megabits a second, which is obviously a lot slower than... A hard disk, but faster than tape. Back up. Yeah, I think I think this tape stuff as well is 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 really far off. Where I don't know, uh, you know that that they're using it at the moment, but um, uh, it's like thirty six terabytes. You know, to get to the petabytes is going to be uh, 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 take a real long time. But I also think it's probably going to save in money, uh, probably saving the environment as well. If if you get this stuff done, um, yeah, without using up so much resources. Well, they're saying that there may even be a way to make it work with existing Blu-ray drives, That's which I bonkers. think that could be a game changer. And they're saying, but the problem is there does seem to be this trend away from optical media. So they're saying, depending on whether adoption or whether they get any more money and enough money to kind of finish it, whether or not that kind of happens means, you know, whether or not it's going to hit the market in the next five years if the development goes ahead. But I'm thinking, though, I mean, could this reverse, like, you know, the PlayStation and the Xboxes? 
idea of abandoning physical media because if you can fit, you know, all that amount of game, you know, if you fit like 2,000 PS5 games on a disc that they can press for about 80 pence, and it might even work with the existing PS5 optical drive, surely you've got to be looking at that and thinking, hang on a minute, maybe we shouldn't, we should reconsider our position on optical media. I just get a dirty feeling about so much storage. It's weird because we come from the days where you have like a 30 megabyte hard disk and you'd really work hard to try and make it, you know, um, uh, kind of fit everything and, and optimised. And when it gets to these levels, I just feel like, oh, that's such a waste. You know, what I could do with that if I had the time. Um, I remember a kid at school talking about a gigabyte and I was like, what the hell is that? That doesn't exist. Yeah. Is that, yeah, it's like infinite amount of storage. Um, but it's weird though, because like in my Amiga 4000 now, I've got a 180 gigabyte hard disk and then it's nearly full. Yeah, I could Quite just how imagine. how much you fill out on an Amiga. I think if you've got the space, you find a way to fill it. Having a few of these yeah. as a as a NAS drive or yeah. something, and you've got everything on there, you know. Yeah. I'm hoping this does come to market, because I think I've got a feeling that the, the main game platforms will not adopt this as a game medium. But I think, yeah, that is where I, it excites me, the fact that you can basically archive everything you've got onto a single one of these discs. Yeah, archive.org would probably fit yeah. one. Yeah, so that is incredible. So uh, hopefully that will go ahead, and if it does, that's going to be on the market the reckon in the next five years if they can get the funding and uh, get enough people testing it out and behind it. So fingers crossed. We'll read more about that. I will put that in the show notes as well. Now, a system that I bet none of us have got in our collections. Have you ever played one, the Nintendo Virtual Boy? You must have played one before, Joe. I don't think I have, you right. know. No, I don't think I have. Uh, I've, I've played one before uh, at like a game show, but um, my neck hurt because the position of it was so bad. <laughs> no, I don't think I've ever played one. I think I've seen them in person, you know, at game yeah. shows and uh, markets and stuff for sale. But no, definitely don't have one. Uh, way, way, way too expensive to just sit on the shelf and not be played. Well, it was definitely Nintendo's biggest failure in their history, as far as I can remember. I've got a feeling there's about 20, 22 games were released on that. Yeah, not um, a lot. Sales were really poor. I think it was on sale in Japan for around six months mm. before it got yanked off the market. And I must admit, I haven't explored the Virtual Boys library all that much. Obviously, it's it's a bit of a laughing stock when you mention it to anyone, you know, kind of in the same breath as like the CDI or the Jaguar. It's a bit like, oh, a fell system. But looking at um, today, I was checking out a few videos of Virtual Boy aficionados you know there are a few on youtube who make videos about the the small collection um and there are a few on there that look pretty decent mario's tennis yeah. uh, which was the launch title on the the virtual boy um featured characters from the mario franchise because it had a 3d effect didn't it now if you haven't played the virtual boy before that was the thing about it it wasn't really a virtual reality headset it had a similar form factor but you kind of crouch down look into it and then it was this weird kind of black and red color in the games that made them into 3d wasn't it it's just yeah. kind of depth. That's yeah. that's what it felt like. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There, a lot of the games. Um, I think the Wario game and, like you say, the tennis game Mario's Tennis. It was the depth perception of the game. Yeah, you know, everything had a kind of like, oh, there's a background and a foreground to the game, or kind of a wireframe in those red graphics. You know, pseudo 3D kind of like looking game but yeah considering the name virtual boy it it wasn't a virtual reality headset which a lot of people mistakenly call it don't they like oh, it's mm. nintendo's vr headset which obviously it wasn't but obviously emulating that if you want to get that 3d effect on like a standard pc you're not going to get the full experience but it turns out there is another bit of hardware that is cheaply available and uh, easily hackable that now there is a fully playable 
full-speed Virtual Boy emulator on the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah, this came out about two or three days ago, and it's called Red Viper, which I think is a really, really cool name. Mm. But yeah, it allows you to emulate uh, Virtual Boy games on the top screen of the 3DS, and then the bottom screen is just a uh, kind of like a menu, uh, and the buttons are there as well. Um, seems to run really, really well, and kind of makes you forget from the little video I'm watching here that it is a Virtual Boy game. It just makes you look at it and just think, it's a game. It's just a wireframe game, yeah, like a little bit like Star Fox or kind of like a Vectrex maybe. You know, if you'd shown me this, I just would have thought, oh, okay, yeah, it's kind of like a just a retro game. But I guess it might be a much nicer way to play virtual well, play games as well if you the, really want to. The big deal about doing it on the 3DS is, and it's hard to see in the video, but actually the 3D support does work. Oh, does it? Oh, yeah. wow. So That's you can really use, you know, you've got the little slider on the right of the screen mm-hmm. on the 3DS. You can turn that up and actually that 3D effect that you would have seen looking into the Virtual Boy goggles actually is displayed on the 3DS That's screen. awesome because... It worked quite well on the 3DS. Yeah, well, it's a perfect system for it. And, you know, they're saying that all the licensed games are playable in, in full screen, even on the original 3DS. So, you know, there's a couple of models of the 3DS as well. Um, there's even game saves are supported on here as well. You can remap the buttons to make it more comfortable. Um, the C-Stick is supported on the later 3DS. Um, configurable face button mapping you can even change the colour filter to make it more comfortable mm. to look at as well. And they've got big plans to develop this further as well, including, because um, there is a homebrew scene on the Virtual Boy, believe it or not. I can't think of any titles off the top of my head, but apparently there are a couple of them out there. So they're saying that the plan is to support you know, all the homebrew games that are out there too, um, make the colour filters more versatile as well, support for PCM samples and you know better save states. And So it does seem like it's, because uh, to me there's been so many of the mainstream systems have got, you know, a variety of emulators. And I must admit, the, the Virtual Boy is not anything I've actually sat down and played before because, again, I'd always feel like if I was looking at it on my, my computer's monitor, I'm not getting the effect that was intended, but it makes perfect sense that this would run on the, on the 3DS. It makes sense. I mean, I'm not huge on the, I like the 3DS as a, you know, the games on it and stuff, but, the you know, the gimmick of the 3D on it actually made me feel sick. Right. Give me a <laughs> I, I could play it, but I just couldn't put it too far, maybe around 25%. That would work for me. But yeah, I, I, I just remember it. playing Nintendo Dogs on it a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, <okay>. <laughs> the dogs, dogs are coming out the screen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, so, I mean, for me, it's it's not the novelty of the 3D and actually playing the Virtual Boy in 3D on it. It's more the, the, the novelty of, oh, that's an easier way to play virtual boy and emulate it if that makes mm. sense are you interested in the virtual boy games then having not experienced them before no to be perfectly honest it's never appealed to me and it's never been a system not even the price point of it or anything like that it's just never been a system that i've been like oh i need to get my hands on one of them you know i want that on the shelf or whatever it's not even the fact that it costs like 500 quid or whatever it is now it's just i don't know i think the the gameplay just doesn't appeal to me which is really interesting because i love the game boy yeah, and it's not like a million miles away from you know, kind of the quality of Game Boy games. Maybe just don't fancy throwing up your lunch after playing. Yeah, it. maybe it was yeah. just that. Maybe <laughs> it was just that. But I think for me, I guess, interestingly, the simplest one of the simplest features of this is the fact that you can filter the colours. On yeah. the little video here, he changes it to a turquoisey green, and that does actually look so much nicer to look at. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of those old school kind of vector graphics games, you know, that you'd see on like a. Those monitors back in the day, mm. the green monitors, um, which I think looks cooler as well than the red effect 
So that just gets a bit dark and it gets a bit lost in the black sometimes when I see it on videos. Yeah. Um, but I've got a 3DS and I haven't modded it yet, but this is making me think that maybe I should um, because this is just the first release of it. It is available on GitHub, so, you know, completely free. Anyone can download it. And uh, it looks like the, the ROMs are available for the, the Virtual Boy games. You can find them pretty simple online. So I think this might be something that I have a go at the weekend. So uh, I'll report back if uh, unless I'm in like a some kind of coma or, you know, vomit my guts up on monday morning um, but yeah so looks quite interesting so a good way to play virtual boy games if it's been a system that you've been interested in but you know want to actually experience that 3d effect without paying those extortionate ebay prices for an original unit so i'll link that up in the show notes as well now imagine ravi is uh, pretty excited about this next story there can't be many games that over 25 years after their initial release is still getting updates and dlc but it turns out age of empires 2 has just got some new content. I'd say I say Joe loves it as well. From from what I remember, I am I'm a big fan of uh, Age of Empires too. But so this is. Am I right in thinking this is new DLC for Age of Empires two? But it's for the HD version that came out in yeah 2019. yeah well definitive edition the definitive edition. Sorry, yeah, but also it's quite interesting because it's it's a mix of new content. So. Okay. It, it's it's an expansion pack with like 19 scenarios, um, but 14 of them are based on user-created content. Oh, okay. So um, these these kind of fans have, have created, you know, some fantastic stuff. Like behind these games, there's always a good community and there's a good fan base that keep them going. Um, I personally don't have enough time to play these games. And like, I absolutely adore them. Maybe when I'm on holiday or something, I'll, I'll just really get into it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, strategy games, God, you, yeah, yeah, I could spend weeks on them. <laughs> AOE and uh, also, you know, uh, Civilization as well. But these are 14 campaigns. Users have created the content. And then what they've done is they've, they've cleaned them up a bit. They've mm-hmm. added professional voice acting on there as well. Um, tweaked it. And fixed up this user content, which I think is a really nice kind of way of approaching it. Thinking these are the fans, you know, um, we're going to add a few of our own scenarios in there, but we're going to use what's popular and uh, clean it up. And what I love about it as well is, like you say, these are, you know, scenarios which have been made by the fans, but they are still based or loosely based and focused on, you know, real life events, historical battles. Yeah, and stuff like that, um, which, you know, was always like the point of Age of Empires. You know, there was always like, oh, yeah, it's William Wallace story or and they've uh, they've based a lot of this on Ragnar Lothbrok. Who I don't actually know who that is, but I'm, I'm not a history buff. At all. I, I, I guess that that's the Vikings. And, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Norway in that that kind of Nordic region mm. uh, definitely sounds like that. Yeah. No, it, it, it looks really cool. And uh, uh, is this something that you try out, Joe? Yeah. Uh, you know what? So it's only nine ninety nine, uh, or twelve twelve nine uh, nine ninety nine pounds, or twelve ninety nine in dollars. And I, the Age of Empires Definitive Edition, is actually available on Xbox Game Pass. And I was really excited about this to a point where, like, I was looking up when it was going to come out on Game Pass because a friend at work told me it was coming out on Game Pass. And I was like, Oh my god, I love Age of Empires two. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I played it like twice and. It's because it was the controller. I really, really, really didn't get along yeah, with it. Yeah, I, I couldn't play it with the controller at yeah. all. It's a definite yeah. mouse and keyboard game. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, what is this kind of thing? And, you know, maybe I should revisit it on the Xbox because I haven't got time to play it on well, my can, PC. Can I mean, you that glue, really Bluetooth silly, but... a mouse and keyboard onto the Xbox? Maybe that'll work. 
I think you um, can in some games, yeah. I'll have to give it a try because, like, you know, I have got a Bluetooth mouse and keyboard, so that's not a bad idea. But it, funny enough, you should say this, my wife, right now, no word of a lie, is playing The Sims 4 on Xbox and she's playing with the controller. Mm. And I said to her, because she's been playing that this week, um, and I said to her, like, is that not feel horrible does that not feel weird and she's like you get used to it after a few hours so maybe i need to go back to it but you know for 9.99 uh to expand the game by you know 14 levels i think is a, a no-brainer if you really if you you know yeah it's actually 19 but stuff. then 14 user ones yeah uh, there you are go. included in that mistake yeah. yeah i just don't think i've got the attention span <laughs> for one of those kind of games they, they're a big time thing aren't they I love how totally. I've just said I yeah. tried to play it on Xbox. Ravi says I I play on Mac, and Dan's just said I ain't got the I ain't got the time yeah. for these games yeah. and the brains. Joe, you, you nearly said it right. <laughs> we all need but to it, get PC gaming rigs and just sit down. I've got one. I just don't use strategy it. Strategy yeah. LAN. Yeah, I've got one. I use it for watching YouTube and editing videos. Um, but yeah, so if you are a fan of that, I mean, I know obviously it's a massive title and we've done episodes about Age of Vampires before I know you guys were huge fans back in the day so it's great to see that um, admittedly the, the remastered version is getting some uh, DLC uh, over 25 years after the original game came out so if you want to get hold of that I'll link up the uh, the article in the show notes as well. Now there's one more story before we hop into our chat with the incredible John Riggs in just a moment. Now I just feel like uh, this has almost become a bit of a meme in the retro podcast sphere over the last couple of years What's running Doom this week? However, I've got to say, I think this one is um, worthwhile of inclusion because I've never seen a lawnmower running an official version of Doom before until I now. I don't understand this. I don't get it. Like, I think lawnmower and I think, like, you know, the big orange flymo in <laughs> your back garden, you know, in your shed. But I'm guessing this is like one of these smart lawnmowers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so the lawn for you. In the lawnmower world, there's different types. We, we, our British association of a lawnmower is, you know, a metal thing that you push around with sharp yeah. blades that's pretty rubbish. Uh, in America, they sit on them and they have these huge ones that you can Petrol drive tower, around yeah. on. And um, these seem to be robot ones. Now, this is really interesting. I went to Norway and I saw loads of these robot lawnmowers everywhere. And... Mm. Um, they were like cutting grass on hills and all these crazy kind of angles. Yeah, so my neighbours have got them. I see them just oh, out cutting the grass. Well, there the you go. Posh area, Dan. <laughs> robots yeah, I haven't got one. So <laughs> Nick one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really want one of these, actually, because, I mean, I'm, I hate cutting the grass. I'm awful at, like, you know, just finding the motivation to go out and do it. However, if I had one of these, I've got a feeling I'd be at the missus. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll just go and set the electric lawnmower up. It'll do its thing. Um, then I come back in about two hours later, having played Doom on it. Because this is, now, it's an official port of Doom. Now, this is, I don't know how to pronounce it. Is this um, Husvana? I believe this is the, the automower. I guess. Yeah, yeah. That sounds Nordic as well. Well, these are basically, like I said, robot lawnmowers. So, you know, you set them up, I imagine, a bit like a Roomba does, like vacuum cleaning. They go and do the lawn for you, go up and down, do it nicely. Uh, but weirdly, this company are sending an update to their mowers that you can get from the uh, late summer this year. We can sign up to play from the 9th of April um, until the 9th of September, 2024. They're going to be sending an update down that actually gives you a legit licensed version of Doom that you can play on the screen that's usually reserved for information on setting up your lawnmower. 
It actually appears on the little screen on the front of the mower. You can play Doom on there. It's, it's pretty interesting. So um, uh, Dream Dreamhack is is a fantastic event, and and that runs in Sweden, and um, it's been running since 1994. So uh, 30 years old that uh, event is, and it looks like these lawnmower people actually put it on and bought it to Dreamhack, right? And then previewed the Doom <laughs> game to the to the world's biggest LAN basically, which has uh, probably got quite uh, quite a few Doom players there as well. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if it had online capabilities. Maybe you can have a, well, yeah, a lawnmower LAN match. Well, it must do because they're sending updates to this via Wi-Fi. Um, oh, so yeah. the, way, the way you play it is actually use the, the mower's onboard display and controls. It's got like a little control knob. They're normally used for like you know navigating the menus. You can use that for controlling the character and firing. So you could um, be playing a game and the lawnmower could join in. <laughs> yeah, I think you'd have to follow the lawnmower around your garden to play it. Or <laughs> mount it, it, mount it. Yeah, that could be yeah, that, could, that, could, that could be a good look. Um, but yeah, what a weird thing though to actually send this officially to uh, an auto lawnmower. I just. Yeah. I mean, the, the <laughs> what's next, Joe? What's, what's next? next? No, I'm just speechless. I mean, it's a very expensive way to play. I'm looking at the prices yeah. of these lawnmowers. It starts at three and a half thousand pound. Uh, their cheaper model is, but it's the fact that you know, like you say, it's on the little screen, but then the buttons is just a dial. Yeah, you just control it with a little dial, and there's a start button on there, um, and then maybe the dial clicks in. So it doesn't look like the best way to play. My Doom. Japanese toilet plays Doom. That yeah, in the next one. <laughs> but I, I love the comments on the YouTube video here. Uh, somebody's put, this is a genuine thing that was done with the big wigs in the suits on a PowerPoint presentation. And they said yes yeah. to it. <laughs> like, obviously, well, it's just I want one now, Joe. It's working on me, this. This market <laughs> yeah. is working on me. So, three and a half thousand quid. Can you think of a better way to play Doom in the garden this summer? No. Um, I can think now. of a, a cheaper <laughs> way to mow your lawn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've got a switch, but yeah, that, that could do the job. Uh, but yeah, I couldn't mow the lawn at the same time. So I think Get it's very scythe. cool. So yeah, that is going to, if you have got one of those lawn mowers, it's going to be available from uh, from April until September this year. So it could be a few summer days out in the garden. So you've got to check that out. I'll link that up. And of course, everything else we talk about, you don't have to Google around. I save you the job every week. Check the show notes on your podcast app or head to the website, theretrohour.com. Right, patrons, stay tuned. There are a couple more news stories on the way for you because we do that for our patrons every week. We top of the adverts out the podcast, so that means, you know, we don't want to shortchange you, so we give you another two or three news stories on the podcast each week. More of those coming up in just a second. And, of course, we are joined by the amazing John Riggs, our guest on the podcast. Before we do that, though... Let's take a second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and it is our wonderful friends at Shopify. Now, being Shopify users, you'll know exactly what that sound means. You guys are smiling here and that. I think I'm playing Habbo. (laughs) It means you've made a sale. Of course it does. It means you've just made some money on Shopify. Now, if you're not familiar with Shopify, this is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Because you know what it feels like right now, particularly with, you know, the cost of everything going up recently, it feels like everyone I know at the moment is starting a side hustle. Now, Joe, you're doing your retro gaming market, selling stuff like that. I've got a friend of mine who's started selling t-shirts. I've got friends that have been doing books recently. It feels like everyone's doing a side hustle, or even better, maybe becoming your own boss at the moment too. And Shopify really takes all of the headache out of doing it for you. And it's revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. Now, we've been talking before about 
seeing these little card readers at you know retro gaming markets. Um, a lot of people, rather than you know, because no one carries cash anymore, a lot of the traders now just taking a lot of card payments using Shopify readers. I saw mm. them at my village Christmas market a couple of months ago as well, and even for selling them online. I mean, if you run a website, Ravi's got experience of you know used to do website design for a living, trying to set up your own e-commerce platform. Oh, it's not a small job. Absolute nightmare, yeah. And and the problem is as well, if if that goes down, you know, people are going to lose sales. Uh, re- reliability is is really important, and um, you know, having support as well for for twenty four hours. Yeah, which uh, Shopify give you. They've got you know full courses, so you can learn it all. They've got that twenty four hour support available as well, and industry leading tools ready to ignite your growth and give you complete control over your business. And the good thing is. With Shopify, you don't have to learn any new skills, no design or coding, nothing like that needed. They'll take care of it all for you and are ready to support your success in every step of the way. So however big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. So if you want to get serious about selling, get Shopify today. And of course you know we get you the best offers. So if you head to this link right now, exclusive to the podcast, you'll be helping us out and you'll get it for just one pound a month. You can try out Shopify for a one pound a month trial period. Head to shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. That is all lowercase, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour to take your business to the next level today and get ready to hear lots of this. And we thank Shopify for their continued support. Okay, next, we are joined by this week's special guest, the very talented John Riggs, talking about his massive YouTube channel, his homebrew games, his love for the NES and the retro breakfast cereal, and lots more. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest, and that we're so honoured to be joined by the incredibly talented John Riggs. Um, of course, I'm sure you know from his hugely successful YouTube channel, his amazing community contributions, those homebrew titles, rig games, his love for the NES. We're going to try and cover all of that and uh, more as well, fingers crossed, over the next hour with John. So uh, great to have you on, John. Welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I was just in the UK not even a month ago, and um, always always love to hear a familiar voice, I suppose. Yeah, so and we were going to get into that, because I know you actually won an award over here in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, at an event, so we'll talk about that in a second, because you were in our, uh, our hometown of Nottingham. So before we get into all that, though, and of course the great work that you do on YouTube, we always like to kind of wind it back to day one with our guests and kind of find out where your journey began. I mean, do you remember your earliest video game memory? Is that something that you recall? Oh, it was a long, long time ago. Um, I was born in 1977, which was the year the Atari 2600 was released. Uh, but my very first or my very first memory was in the arcade and playing Donkey Kong, uh, the arcade machine. And I know in my memory, I know I've played it before, but I just remember seeing Donkey Kong and saying, oh, I think I'm going to play Donkey Kong and walking up to it and playing it. So I'm sure I've had more video game memories before that. But uh, my that's my earliest memory is uh, spending most most of my time in the arcade. That's kind of what we had at the time. 
I uh, read you grow up in uh, the uh, Palm Springs of Washington. Uh, What was the arcade scene like then, there where you grew up? (laughs) I like like how you did your research. Uh, The Palm Springs of Washington, it's Yakima, Washington. Yakima is the Palm Springs of Washington. It's a huge practical joke that everyone's in Mm. on here. Um, There was a local farmer who put up a sign by the freeway saying, Welcome to Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington, because it's totally not. It's the complete opposite. Um, but it's it's a joke we all uh, um, own up to uh, here in Yakima. Uh, we had a few arcades. We had our local mall, which had you know, probably our most famous arcade for people who grew up in Yakima during those days. It's called Jolly Joker, and it was fine. Um, there's another kind of mall downstairs. There's another mall um, or another arcade downstairs from that. That wasn't as populated. And there's another arcade at, at the other mall as well. Um, and then we had this mall I really liked to attend. But my mom didn't like me going there because smoking, it was during the 80s where smoking was like socially acceptable, like indoors. So it was this really seedy, shady, smoke filled um, arcade. But it was the arcade that had Bubble Bobble. So I loved going there because I loved Bubble Bubble at the time. <laughs> but, Amazing game. I love yeah, Bubble Bubble as well. I don't come home smelling like cigarette smoke. So uh, I had to, <laughs> you know, take the good with the bad, I suppose. But. Yeah, I don't know. Um, outside of that, growing up in the, especially here in the United States in the 80s, um, it was during a time where arcades aside, every restaurant, every grocery store, every um, every mini mart, every just about any place you could think of would have one or two arcade machines there too. So I could just kind of have to keep track and uh, keep my friends posted, and they'll tell me like what's going on. Oh, the, you know, this place over here just got the you know this arcade machine or whatever. So we we'd look out for each other as well to find out where all the games were. You know, in terms of home systems, have you kind of always been a gamer or did you get to a stage where maybe you took a bit of a break and then got back into it? Or have you always liked to look back on like retro systems? Did you keep them all or did you ever get rid of them? How did that kind of work your interest in in retro? Well, I've always had a passion for it. Um, I'm, I, I came from a big family. Um, I'm the sixth of seven children uh, growing up in a giant house with one TV because, again, during the 80s, You'd only have one TV. Like, you know, it'd be like having more than one microwave. Why would you have more than one microwave? You only need one. So in our house, we just had the one television that we all kind of shared. Um, I remember taking, we'd have to take turns too, because both of my brothers and um, and my two sisters were also uh, big fans of video games. I think I was a, the biggest fan, but I have a brother of mine who's also a very big fan too. He's also a retro collector too. And uh, we would just have to we'd have to take turns. But on top of that, yeah, we have other hobbies. I, I love uh, I enjoyed playing basketball. I would just, you know, the general hang out with friends and watch movies and all that, too. Um, but the passion of mine where I realized, you know, what, video games is like my favorite thing to do in the world. Um, that kind of came a little bit later when um, probably when I got my own television <laughs> and then I could spend as much time mm-hmm. on on video games as, as much as I needed. So long as I did my homework, too. Yeah, it was it was a it was a beautiful thing. And were, was the NES your favorite system growing up, would you say? Because obviously you've got a big affiliation with it on your YouTube channel. It became my favorite system. Um, I grew mm. up with the Atari 2600. That was my, um, so I had the Atari 2600 first. Mm. Um, I probably got ours, I think probably 1981 had to have been. It was right around when Pac-Man first came out. Because I remember like Pac-Man was the big selling unit for for mm. the Atari at that time. So right around then. And that was just, it was, again, and we, you know, with all the games that we could play, you know, we'd also play like two-player games on it too. Uh, growing up, growing through, they got to the point when finally the NES came out, and I got mine pretty late. I didn't get my NES until probably late 1988, maybe early. Okay. I don't, I don't think early 89, um, but mm. probably like late 88 sounds about right. Um, and it blew my mind. Like just, I was like, mm. oh, it, to me, it was like one-to-one arcade graphics with what you could play mm. at home. More than Atari, where it's like, well, you can play it in the play it in the arcade, you can play it at home. 
it's kind of two different experiences, but it's mm-hmm. a close enough reasonable facsimile thereof to be like, yeah, it's good enough. But yeah, that, uh, yeah, like when I saw Super Mario Brothers in the arcade for the first time, which is the first time I ever saw it, and then I saw it on the NES at home, I was like, this is the same game. It's like, you know, it may as well just be the same game. So, um, yeah, the, the NES, and then even, you know, going to Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, um, I was a huge fan of the Turbo, TurboGrafx 16, and then other consoles too. I found my, I would always find myself going back to playing, you know, the classic games on NES, well, and Super Nintendo and everything else too. Um, but always had an, always had a fondness for the, uh, NES. It's kind of like your favorite band of all time is probably the band you listen to the most in high school. Yeah. It just ha- it happens to be <laughs> that way. So it kind of came from that where it's like, you know, like bring, like playing that brought back all, you know, always brings back all the great memories of growing up. Well, let's spin forward a few years then to um, your, the start of your YouTube channel. So obviously, you know, you're a, you're a passionate gamer. How did you decide to start a channel and what made you want to pick a camera up and start recording videos for YouTube? How did that start? It started with um, my, uh, my friend Jason, who's uh, on YouTube. He's Metal Jesus Rocks. Um, he's mm-hmm. another guy in the Northwest. Uh, we go to the same video game conventions. I knew him from that, and I knew he had a YouTube channel, but even at the time, I didn't really watch YouTube for shows. It didn't make any sense to me. I'd, I'd, you know, YouTube, I'd like look up old music videos from MTV or something, um, but I never thought about using it like for all these people who are you know making kind of their own shows, their own programs, using YouTube as the, uh, as the medium. Uh, but Middle Jesus Rocks already had a channel and he would invite his friends on there. And I knew him just from the conventions. Mm. And one time we were just chatting and uh, it was back when I first started hacking Nintendo games to like replace characters and replace graphics and things. And I was like, well, I can put you in a video game if you'd like. Um, and I asked him what kind of games he likes. He likes shooters. So I started mentioning all these Japanese games, all these Famicom games that came out that were that were the kind of shooters he would like but didn't come out of the United States. So if somebody did play it, or if he played it, it would be like playing a brand new game. It's just I would swap out the, the spaceship for him flying on a guitar or something. <laughs> um, and after after coming, and, 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 I, and I made the game too, but after coming up with all these games um, for the Famicom, I was like, well, we can do this one, that one, you know, um, like Over Horizon's a great one. Um, Paradius is kind of fun, but maybe not that one so much. That's when he was like, you know a lot about Japanese video games and my other friends, not as much, like not as much as you anyway. Um, he's like, do you want to come on my channel and talk about, you know, import video games like for the Famicom, for Super Famicom? I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, you know, no problem at all. And I think maybe he knew or didn't know or something that, you know, I come from a radio broadcasting background. So it was very easy for me to talk in front of a camera and I can talk about all day about anything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so after we did it, like, you know, first take, he was like, wow, that was really easy. Do you want to come back and do more? <laughs> I was like, sure. And the more I kept coming, so I was on his channel before I even had my own channel. He was the one who said, you know, you could start your own channel too. You have all these games, you have all this, you know, all these memories and everything. You could start your own YouTube channel. And I was like, yeah, maybe, I, maybe I will. So, you know, it, he was, he was the major inspiration for me starting my own channel. I, I think he was just sick of me coming over to his place all the time. <laughs> it was easy for me because I, I just had to show up and talk about video games. He does all the editing. But then once I yeah. saw kind of what he did, I was like, well, I can do that. You know, sure. So that's, that's kind of where my channel started anyway. That's fantastic. Was that the same with a uh, little bit off topic, but with John Hancock as well? Is that how his channel kind of started as well? Literally going on so. Jason's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Same, same with Reggie. Same with, um, same with many people who were on his channel and started their own channel. It was because, you know, we were on his channel first and, you know, after a while, it's like, well, you know, I, I can mm. do that, too. And, yeah. and why not? So he was he was very um, instrumental to, you know, getting a lot of people started with channel. Then he'd also have some tips or insight with how YouTube works, um, like some YouTube philosophy from, you know, from those days, too. So yeah. it worked. So it worked out pretty well for it worked out pretty well for for a lot of us. Uh, and then a lot of us still know us as being on his channel, too, which is which is fine by me. 
Yeah, yeah. That's how that's how I know you. I've been following you for a few years. I've been following Metal Jesus for about eight years now, maybe. Sure. And I remember, yeah. you know, you guys all popping up on the channel and stuff like that. And then suddenly, oh, they've got their own channels and they're growing right. big and stuff. So mm. it's it's wonderful <laughs> to see. Um, yeah, but speaking of speaking of your channel, um, obviously you put stuff out pretty much almost every day, every other day. And you cover such a wide range of topics on there, obviously game repairs to breakfast cereals, which I love <laughs> right. as well. How do you decide on what content content to produce next? And where do you find the time to just keep making those videos all the time? It's all time management. It's all, mm. you know, all um, I don't go to the movie theaters. I don't binge watch series on Netflix. There's a lot of things that most I would say, say typical people do that are just that just aren't interesting to me at all. Like I would rather, mm. you know, film for YouTube and edit and, you know, post something that's kind of fun. It's something that I'd want to watch anyway. And uh, other people seem to uh, gravitate towards a lot of the videos I do. I'm able to just, you know, film edit. my edit. My editing is very simple. It's not yeah. Hollywood style. You know, there's there's no no frills, no gimmicks, you know, nothing, no, no bells and whistles, nothing fancy about it. It's just here's a bunch of video games. And here's, you know, I'll just kind of let the, the gameplay footage you do the talking. I mean, I do the talking, but I bet let the gameplay footage. You can see what I see what I'm talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And so many of those are so easy for me to almost just kind of throw together that, you know, when inspired, I can just whip up something and then, um, you know, I usually have it ready to go like the next day. Um, very rarely do I like take, you know, a day or two or three to edit the same video, I suppose. Um, but it just comes down to, you know, just having the time to do all that. And I do have a full-time job and I have children and, and the YouTube part is fun for me. So it's always, you know, fun for me to do that. And then the inspiration comes from if I do a video that did well, oh, perfect. Well, the good news is all of the video games I talk about have already been released. So I'm not, you know, like, oh, I can't wait to play this new game so I can talk about it. It's like, no, all the games are already out. That's, and that's mm-hmm. good news. That's one of the benefits of being kind of a retro YouTuber uh, who talks about the um, all these classic video games. So when it comes to, like, I just recently released a video that were, here's a bunch of Sega Genesis games, Mega Drive to you. Here's a mm-hmm. bunch of Sega Genesis games that you forgot about or this games that nobody talks about. And it's doing pretty well. So that was like, oh, cool. Now I can do the same video for Nintendo. I can do the same video for the Super Nintendo. I can do the same video for uh, the arcades, even. I could do the same mm-hmm. video for all these other consoles. And that's <laughs> so it, it kind of, you know, kind of writes itself. And then I always get, you know, great suggestions from the um, from the comments as well. I love those kind of videos, too, because um, obviously there's a lot of games that we've played a million times on these retro systems. Sure. But actually, I enjoy finding kind of forgotten gems and stuff that maybe is a bit left of centre. I mean, you know, when you're exploring titles to cover on your channel, is there anything that kind of makes a game stand out to you? I imagine you probably don't want to do the, you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog 2s that have been covered a million times, that kind of thing. Well, and sometimes you you almost have to talk about them just to acknowledge them. It's like, but, you know, yeah. I, sometimes I'll use that as the standing point. So like, well, everybody's heard of Sonic the Hedgehog 2, but if you love Sonic, then you'll probably like Socket is another game that came out for the Mega Drive that plays just like Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, I, it was one of the games I featured on my channel, but it's just the game that nobody talks about, you know, or say, but mm-hmm. you know, Super Mario Brothers three, where everyone knows Mario three. But if you like that style of game, then here are like 10 other games that are a lot like it, maybe not as good, but you've already played Mario three. So it, it'll hopefully kind of re-spark that interest in, you know, th- those style of games. So it's always fun to see, you know, what all is out there. And you know, I, I, I love seeing the comments, too. I love seeing the comments of people saying like, oh, hey, that look at that game looks great. I can't wait to find it. Um, or the people who say, "Oh my God, I, I I completely forgot about that game. I forgot my cousin had that game, and I played it once at his cabin thirty years ago. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to find the name of it, and I couldn't think of it. And there it is. So those are the, those are the ones I liked because I for me it's all the it's all nostalgia. It's, it's all memory. Um, yeah. and I love kind of unlocking those memories from other people too. I love that. I also love your open cart surgery. 
Uh, I find it quite therapeutic. Yeah, it, that started literally from somebody sent me a, a bunch of broken video games and I would just fix them without YouTube. Um, I would just do them on the side. I'd, just, I'd get these games in. I might find them at a flea market or at a convention and maybe they're not working um, or even sometimes on eBay. Um, on eBay, they would list like a you know, video game as is broken, untested and 99.9% of the time, it's just cleaning them. And those always make the most boring videos, I, I think. But for a while there, I was just doing that anyway, just to do this. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, since I'm doing this anyway, I may as well film it and post it and see what happens. And so I started uh, the open cart surgery type videos almost as a throwaway video series. I was like, well, hmm. I'm just going to do this anyway, and I'll just do this. And here we go. And uh, for a while there, it was what people liked most on my channel. <laughs> so um, I don't do them as often as I used to. I still try to do at least maybe one a month if I can. Um, but it's just, it, it just started out as, as a thing that I've been doing. Um, even video rental stores um, in the 90s, um, um, I had a good relationship with the one down the street from my house where they would always, people would bring in a game. Maybe the piece of plastic broke off in the inside and say, oh, this game's broken. It's not working. And they don't question it. They just put it in a pile and they'll get to it later. They never get to it though. But I was just like, I can fix those for you. So you know, they trusted me enough to take home this giant stack of video games and I fixed them and I brought them back and said, well, these two don't, this, these, these two definitely don't work. Uh, but all these ones are actually just fine. I, I just cleaned them up. So I was able to do that in exchange for free video game rentals. And it worked out pretty well. Is there any kind of common points of failure in a lot of the cards that you look at? I mean, like batteries, for example. Yeah, I mean, um, sometimes, I mean, again, most of the time it's just cleaning them for the most part. A lot of Game Boy games, it's the, um, you just have to re-solder like the solder points. It's just, I don't know if it's just like, I've heard the term cold solder. That's the other thing too. I'm not kidding when I say, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I don't have a tech background. I don't know why any of it works, but I, I can put puzzles together really well. So if I can just, you know, do kind of just the troubleshooting that I typically do. Yeah. Sometimes, I mean, outside of cleaning them, sometimes it is, you know, sometimes even with the battery, the game should still, I mean, I would think the game would still work even if there wasn't a battery there. Um, it just won't save. <laughs> but <laughs> while you're in there anyway, you may as well replace the battery. Um, we have a couple of video game stores in the Seattle area that every time they put out a, a game on the shelf, like let's say Earthbound, um, they will always replace the battery up front just so you know. So if you're getting a copy of The Legend of Zelda, you know it's going to have a new battery because those batteries aren't supposed to last, you know, 20 years. <laughs> and, yeah. and we're already over that part for uh, that mark for many of these uh, classic cartridge-based video games. So, they, they, you know, replacing the battery while you're in there, sometimes it is just, you know, reflowing the solder points because the solder has been kind of dormant for, you know, so long that just in doing so, it kind of reactivates it. I don't know how that works, though. It's all, it's all magic to me, and I'm the one looking at it. The good news is, even if the game doesn't work, I'll post the video anyway because there are way smarter people than me in the comment section. And that's... And that's how the internet works. If, if you want to know how to do something right, do it wrong on the internet and you'll be corrected. <laughs> you'll be somebody, corrected immediately. Yeah, somebody will quickly tell you. I love oh, yeah. that. And I love it. And I, I, I love all the insight. I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how I'm learning too. So it works out mm. great. That's brilliant. So obviously your channel's, you know, getting pretty big with 200,000 uh, followers now, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Was there anything like a particular video that significantly impacted your channel and made it big? Or do you think you know, kind of like your journalism and radio background contributed towards this? Or do you think it's just consist consistency? It's. I think it's all consistency. Um, in fact, going back to open cart surgery, and this is a true story. Um, 
when I started doing the open current surgery videos and especially when I started attending video game conventions, that's one of my favorite things mm. to do in the world is um, I love mm. to travel. I love to visit these conventions. I love to talk to people, you know, like on like one-to-one, maybe go out to the pub, grab a drink or something. Every time I'd go to these video game conventions, uh, the, 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 the top two compliments I would always get were, I like it when you try to fix broken video games and I like it that you have your kids on your channel because you're a family friendly channel. So I was like, perfect. I will give the people what they want. And this is a little bit of like YouTube philosophy now. I was like, I'll give the people what they want. Nothing but open cart surgery videos. I want to do more unboxing videos with my kids because that's fun for us. And and I'll just do that. And my channel stopped growing oh, because wow. I was super serving the existing audience. The audience right. was already there. So of course, the people who are seeing me at conventions, the one who are like, hey, I recognize you for this channel because of these things. Uh, they're already subscribed. They're already watching. Mm -hmm. So the views were fine. The comments were fine, but my subscribers weren't growing because all of my videos were the same style of video. It's when I branched out a little bit saying, you know what? I'm just going to start talking about random games. And hopefully, like if I talk about here's 10 Super Nintendo games you forgot you rented or whatever, um, or here, here's 10 here's ten Nintendo games that you can play without knowing Japanese. Then that's when you start being suggested by YouTube. Like maybe they'll watch a much bigger channel than mine. Then I'll be like, oh, hey, if you like this channel, maybe you'll like this channel. For a while there, I was being recommended by these other tech channels, which was bad news for me because that's when, you know, again, the tech channels who actually know what they're doing versus me, who's just doing it for entertainment saying, well, let's see what this works. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, well, I'll just throw it in the garbage, <laughs> which is <laughs> just the complete opposite of what they wanted. Um, turned out to my disadvantage by being suggested by other tech channels. But when I started being suggested by other, you know, gaming channels, um, then I started growing a little bit more and a little bit more. And uh, again, you just look for those videos that that seem to work. And when you find those videos that are like the like the hidden gems, like you talk about, um, perfect. I can do a hidden gems for the TurboGrafx 16. I can do a hidden gems for the GameCube, you know, or the Game Boy, whatever. So you just kind of you just kind of go from there, and you know, hopefully, uh, ride the coattails of. The, the last video that you, that you published. Well, one interesting project you were involved with was um, the retro game hunting film, The Bits of Yesterday. So can you tell us a bit about your role in that and kind of what the film's impact was on the on the retro gaming community? How, how well was that received? You know, I, I think it was received pretty well. Um, what happened was um, the director uh, reached out to a few people that he knew on social media and said, hey, I'm, I'm directing this film. He, uh, he was an aspiring uh, film director inspired by other kind of indie film directors as well. And he can do that. Anybody can do that. But he but he actually went out and did that. Um, so so props to Darren for doing that. It, you know, it worked out pretty well. It was, I think, the first I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the first video game documentary. I've been at a few of them now, but that was the first one that I was in. And um, though he flew around a little bit and chatted with other people who were who were game collectors. And that's the other thing is I don't consider myself a game collector. I have a collection. But I don't I'm not like actively seeking certain things for a collection. Mm. I just like to talk about the games I have. You know, I happen to have a collection, of course, um, you know, but not not so much of that. So uh, but we happen to be at the same place. Uh, it was the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which takes place in Portland, Oregon, on the west side of the United States. And we, we both happened to be there. He happened to have his camera. So he's like, oh, I'm just I'll just set up a tripod here and I'll ask you a few questions and. You know, he he tried to ask me the questions in between. You know, they're they're also playing like you know '80s music on the overhead speakers. So you know, in between the hollow notes and all that, we're you know trying to quickly uh, answer and ask questions. <laughs> nice you know, back and, <laughs> back and forth. Um, and then that was it. And then um, and then after a while, after you know the editing was all done, then the 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 movie was published and produced, and it was like, oh cool, that's it's kind of fun to see that because you know, I see myself on YouTube often enough. But then here I am now you know, on a DVD, on something, on another, you know, physical, tangible item. And it was, it was a fun project to be a part of. 
So uh, you mentioned earlier on the uh, kind of how you got to know Metal Jesus Rocks and you did your ROM hack for him and stuff like that. Yeah. How did you get started with your ROM hacks and what was the first game and what, what's the process like there? How did you oh, start? Sure. How did you get into that? And that's and that's one of the th- one of the things where I got my YouTube channel started was mm. showing people how to do their own ROM hacks too. Mm. Um, but how that happened was um, I, I'm familiar with like NES games for sure, and then Famicom games, and then I started started seeing people kind of deconstructing and recreating their own Nintendo games by hacking them, by changing the physics, by changing the graphics, mm. and I've seen a lot of them, and. Um, they came to, uh, my child and I, I don't know if it was popular in the, uh, in the UK or not, but we had a, we had a children's cartoon called Adventure Time. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I was watching Adventure Time, a young boy with his, um, anthropomorphic, um, dog who can kind of change shape. Mm. And then I went to the internet and said, oh, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, somebody should make a, um, a hack of a boy in his blob, but replace the boy in his blob with Finn and Jake from yeah. this cartoon. And the internet, being the internet, was like, why don't you do it? And I was like, you know, why don't I do it? I never thought about that. I could figure out how to do this. I mean, if somebody can do this, and I've seen all the naked Mario hacks. I've seen all the, um, you know, there's a Super Mario Brothers 2 hack where you play as the Beatles. There's all these kind of obscure hacks out there. I was like, well, certainly, if if so, if it can be done, I can figure it out. So, um, unfortunately, the internet also being the internet, a lot of the forums for how to kind of modify video games were written in very technical terms that I didn't quite understand, which is mm-hmm. why I did my YouTube videos where it's like, look, in layman's terms, I'll show you how I do it. It's not it's there. I'm sure there's a better way, but it works for me. And I started, uh, that's why I started doing that. And uh, the first game I did was just for a friend of mine. I just, it was very simple. Super Mario brothers. I removed Mario, put his son in there, um, changed the title screen. I don't, I don't even think I changed the title screen at the time. That's how early it was. Mm-hmm. And I did that. And then, and then that was that. And then the other good news is I knew how to make my own reproduction cartridges. So one, it's one thing that you can do that. You can play the ROM. You can put the ROM in your EverDrive. You can put the ROM wherever you want. But then, you know, the added value of, oh, now I can put it back onto a cartridge. So you have a physical NES cartridge that you can pop into your uh, Nintendo system to play this uh, to play this game hack. That kind of makes it, you know, a reality to a lot of people or, you know, a dream come true for some who have always wanted to be in a video game. And now you can make that happen you know, to, to an extent, I suppose. So... Um, all these years later, I learned how to do that almost 10 years ago now. Mm. Um, it's been about 10 years, yes, now that I think about it, that I started doing that. And still to this day, I never did do the Adventure Time hack of a boy in his blob. <laughs> oh, wow. There's still time, Joe. <laughs> I was able at least to do that and then to do a couple of other things. And um, that, that's just kind of how I got started with what what eventually became just, you know, started working on my own NES projects was, um, and Toby Fox was the same way. Toby Fox uh, famously made... Um, Undertale, but he was also the guy who did the Halloween hack of um, Earthbound. Mm. So, you know, kind of got kind of got started that way. Where it's like, well, at first I'll just start hacking my own video games, and then after a while, it's like, okay, if I can kind of like Frankenstein, you know, building Frankenstein's monster. If you replace mm. all of the limbs, it becomes a new person. So, if I replace all of the items, maybe it could become a new video game. I just need someone to help me with the brain of it all. So, oh. yeah, interesting. Yeah, I know over the last you know decade, your, your involvement in the indie scene and, you know, indie, indie and retro kind of go hand in hand anyway. Um, right. You, you've become really involved in it in the last decade or so. It, recently, I know you've been working with uh, low-tech games who do a lot of great indie games for the Dreamcast and the NES. Tell us a bit more about your uh, collaboration there then. How did that come about? 
I, I wanted to have a video game where you sympathize with the treasure chest mimic. I've always loved the mimic mm-hmm. character from video games. I, I, I take that back. I've always hated the mimic character in video games. Right. But I figured, well, but it's kind of, a, you know, it's a well-known enough creature that it would be nice if they made their own video game. Like, it would be nice if, if, if the mimic had its own game where you can play as literally that. And so I started thinking of all these ideas of, you know, maybe you can use the tongue to dart around, uh, you know, to catch the uh, the gems in the room or something, or maybe you can kind of scoot it around. And in my brain, what I thought of was more of like an Indiana Jones adventure style game, a, a little bit like a quirk. I, I, I was thinking quirk in my mind, which is a Game Boy game I really like, where we had to like, you know, you, you push the block into the hole so you can walk across the block and then you have to use a ladder to get somewhere. Um, but every stage would end with you going to the treasure chest, which happens to be a mimic who eats you. And then the next stage is doing it all over again. And so I pitched that idea to a few people. And um, Alistair from uh, from Low Tech Games was the first one I pitched it to. And I kind of brought up my idea. And then he very casually in very Alistair form, he was just like, oh, you mean a little bit like a like you mean like Choo Choo Rocket? And I was like, oh, my God, even better. Exactly like that. Now, never mind everything else I was thinking about. That's the only thing I could think of when I was a I was an insane fan of Choo Choo Rocket, especially for the Dreamcast. I played it a lot on the Game Boy Advance, too. I was like, oh, if we could do like a Choo Choo Rocket game where instead of the the mice going to to the rocket launch pad, mm. it was like an adventurer and ended up which ended up becoming knights. Um, if it was like the, the person going to the mimic and who at the end would be eaten and then you move on to the next stage. I think that's, I think that'd be even funnier. So it started with that and. He, at the moment, he was like, well, I'm a little busy right now working on some other projects. He's always working on like nine games at a time. Mm. Um, but he, but the more, but the more we, the more, I don't know if it was the more he thought about it or something. I don't know. But at, at first he didn't quite decline, but he was like, oh, I'm pretty busy right now. But, um, you know, and during the time I also pitched it to uh, Dale Coop, who has done many NES homebrews and several, several others as well. But at the end of the day, because it was that choo-choo mimic thing, I mean, really, Low Tech Games was the one I really wanted involved with this project. You know, I, I, w- I would have been happy with anyone, but I, I know he could bring that just that little bit of extra something. Um, and especially when we started coming up, he's, he showed me like a mock-up, like a quick like, well, you know, maybe if we do it this way and we could uh, design the levels um, using the same program he uses to make uh, like Tapeworm or Flea, which uh, which is also a plug and play thing that we could both work on at the same time. Then it kind of became a because at first I was just like, you know what, if you code the game, I will do all the other work. I can do graphics. I can do music. I can do everything else. And the more we talked about it, the more he was like, actually, instead of like just coding it, like can, you want to just like go like half and half, like we just go partner partner on this game. I was like, you know what? I'd, I'd love that even more because I, I, lo- I love Flea. Um, I, I am an insane Tapeworm fan. Tapeworm may be my favorite NES game, um, NES homebrew of all time. Mm. I love Tapeworm. And I just like the other projects. I love I love his art style. And, and we're both huge fans of puns. We love the the, the worst puns, the better. We love the dad jokes. Um, <laughs> that that that's how we speak to each other all weekend long. Whenever we see each other at conventions, um, so that's what that's how it came about. And then you know, and I, I learned a little bit along the way too um, from from the uh, from this whole process, and, and it worked out great for both of us. I think that's brilliant. So obviously, you know, you kind of started out with your hacks on the NES, and these games have developed from there. Some of these games, such as Choo Choo Mimic, uh, have landed on the Evercade, which, you know, we love the Evercade. We're, we're talking about the Evercade pretty much every week on the podcast at the moment. Oh, I love it's, it. It's just fantastic. And obviously yeah. these games have developed into GBA titles, Dreamcast titles. What's the development process there? Are you involved in that or is that Low Tech Games and Alistair is that? You know, I think we I think we can both do that. Um, mm. How that comes about is once you have the NES ROM, 
It's very easy to port that NES ROM to just about anything you'd want. Now, he took care of the Playdate, and that's one thing mm-hmm. um, I didn't have my hands in. But he was like, oh, I, you know, and I'll put it over to Playdate, too. Perfect. I mean, the more consoles, the better. So, it, so it's available on Playdate. Um, and then when um, I had my previous game, Yeah, Yeah, Beavis 2 on Evercade as well. And then he had uh, Flea and Tapeworm on Evercade. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so it was just a no-brainer as long as, you know, they, they gave the approval, which, you know, of course they did. Um, Ant Stream as well came about, too. But it's like, as long as you have that NES ROM, you can port the NES ROM to, you know, to run it through, you know, in all transparency, basically a Nintendo, like an like a NES emulator. So mm-hmm. it plays on the Dreamcast or, you know, the same thing. So it plays on Game Boy Advance. Um, right. It just involves, it's just that extra step. So something like Playdate takes a little bit more coding, but then like something as something like Dreamcast or Game Boy Advance, you know, it was easy just to, you know, almost convert the ROM. You still have to change some of the in-screen text because to make it match like a Dreamcast controller, yeah. for instance, mm-hmm. versus an NES controller. You know, and then and later on, we'll plan on putting it on Steam and Switch and everything else that we can too. But again, it just, it involves that other, that that extra help of something that's out of my control. But I have friends who can. So that's that's what it all comes to the networking. It's interesting to hear about, you know, mapping it to different controllers because the play day, I imagine, is in a completely different world to all the rest of them, because that's kind of got that that winch on the side, hasn't it? The handle that you can. Turn. Oh, you're sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, and you and you'll see that sometimes too, and it's just as easy as you can just change the end screen, like the end game text or the end game, you know, like gra- like like visuals. If there is a like, you know, this button does this. Mm-hmm. Well, you just have to change, you know, from the from a B to an A or to a, you know from from a B to a, a Y on the uh, Dreamcast, you know, something like that. Well, Choo Choo Mimic was very well received. You actually won a uh, Retro World Award. For that too, that must have been uh, very rewarding to to get that accolade. I 100% didn't think it was going to happen. Mm. I was just happy to be there. Um, when I heard that debug, they they, they make this wonderful um, indie magazine uh, there in the UK, and they said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to start our own award show." And that's the beautiful thing is you don't have to wait for another games award to you know. And there's there there's a very popular one in the US, and the the indie title almost goes underneath their breath in between all the other trailers and all the commercials and all the paid advertising, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, here's the indie game of the war. It could be this, 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 and this is the winner. Here we go. And then and done. And that's it. And so I think they put it in their own minds to say, look, this is, I mean, indie games are the wave of the future. You hear about all these layoffs every day um, from all these major companies. The beautiful thing about the um, indie uh, indie developers is if there's going to be a layoff, it's because you fired yourself, you know, yeah. so you don't have to wait for someone else to step in. <laughs> So when it came about that they were going to have a retro category and, and or any other category too, um, I was like, well, I mean, uh, Choo Choo Mimic was, you know, we're st- we're still working on getting like the CIB copies for NES. You can get it loose right now, but you know yeah. everything else. But since it was re- available on Evercade um, through their Game of the Month program as well as Playdate, it officially came out uh, last year. So for the last, you know, so for the, uh, the 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 calendar year of twenty twenty three. Um, you know, we, we threw Choo Choo Mimic, uh, in there as well. And, you know, um, I, I told one of the organizers of the event who I hadn't met yet. I was just like this, I mean, it's a long shot. I know there's gonna be a lot of great competitors cause it's not just like Nintendo games. I mean, there's going to be mm-hmm. games out there for, um, you know, for steam, for Playdate, for, uh, for, for any console really. Um, so long as it has that indie vibe to it, um, you know, games that are on Game Pass right now. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm competing with games that are like on Xbox and PlayStation. So it's like, I'm, I'm happy just to be in there, but there is a retro category for physical games made for, you know, the, one of the, a couple of the games that were in there were available for the Atari 2600. You know, it, it could be anything. And there's a game on there for Dreamcast. And I was like, you know what? There, the game that was available for Dreamcast, uh, Driving Strikers, great game. It's a, it's a really fun game. It's definitely worth checking out. 
Uh, it's on Steam also, but they had it on Dreamcast. So that was also up for an award for the Retro World at the uh, indie, the the Debug Indie Game Awards. I was like, that's probably going to be the one that wins because that's like that has the home field advantage being it was made in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the programmers um, are also part of like Debug in a way, not like not not directly involved, but still like, you know, like Wave Studios and Wave Dust and things with a debug and everything. So I was like, well, I'm just happy to be a part of it. And um, the fact that it was even nominated, I was like, hey, you know, since it's nominated, that gives me the excuse to fly to the UK, you know, go to Nottingham. I've never been to Nottingham, get to hang out there for a few days. And um, yeah, to my surprise, and not not to my surprise was when they said, well, it's, we're not even the judges here. I mean, the, the people who are judging are all these outside sources from all over the world. Um, who don't have, you know, they don't, they don't have a hand in the pot in the first place. So, they, you know, it doesn't matter to them who wins or loses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad I arrived. <laughs> glad I showed up because, um, I was just filming it just for the good of the cause and just happy. I mean, honored to be nominated in the first place. Yeah. But when they actually, um, said the name out loud, um, I truly believe what Einstein says where time is relative. Yeah. <laughs> where when they said the name, I was like, there's no way they actually said that name. And then I had to replay it again in my head. I was like, no, wait, they actually said that name. And I kind of looked around. And I saw a couple of people looking at me. I was like, I think I was supposed to go up on stage now. I better tell you, don't And it's funny because um, Alistair and I were sitting on opposite ends of the auditorium too. Not by nature of we hate each other. It's just, you know, he he found his seat with some friends and um, uh, a friend of mine, Nate from the US. He was also there because uh, he had one of his games up for nomination as well. I was like, and we were, we both kind of convinced ourselves. We're just like, our game is not going to win, but man, what a fun experience to be here. And uh, sure enough, it happened. He was like, I think you should go up there. <laughs> I was like, okay, so, um, so it worked out pretty well. And now, and now for the rest of our time, Choo Choo Mimic, we can always say is a, you know, an indie, the, the debug indie game award winner. Uh, we put that sticker right on the, uh, right on the box if we want to. Oh, you should be very proud of that as well. And the fact that, you know, the, these games are now being recognized so much that you can attend international award shows just proves kind of how big the indie retro scene is now, doesn't it? Oh, it really does. And, um, and growing, growing yeah. exponentially. And I, and I love it. Um, so many people, and again, I get it. Uh, you know, people always talk about the big AAA titles, the big games, you know, the ones that are spending all the advertising and everything, the ones that are made by these full teams of, you know, 24 seven developers and all that. And, you know, but just, there's something fun about just the, you know, the, the, the just made by fans, like we're fans first and, you know, and there is no corporate, you know, we're not, we're not trying to appease the uh you know the financial backers we're not trying to you know go out of our way you know maybe the wife of the owner of the company says oh it would be nice if you put our dog in there well i'm <laughs> sure that that is nice and you can do things like that too but you know when you're going out of your way to to be your your most creative artistic self but you're still limited with you know because other people are paying for it you know that's got to take, take a toll on your own uh personal soul i would think after a while you know, but when it's just, you know, it's Alistair and I, and it wasn't just the two of us. It was Alistair and I, along with, um, and Tui did the music and I love his music. Um, he did the music for, uh, Donut Dodo that came out recently as well as a cat, uh, cash cow DX is coming out soon. So it was cool to have somebody who has, you know, like all these great, like, you know, retro inspired, um, indie games as well. And then he's also doing music for an NES console. And it's like, that's amazing. You know, I'm so proud of it. I'll, I'll at least say this. Um, I've had, I've had some great accolades, um, so far in my mm. kind of content creator, journey i was in a um i was in a documentary called rarity which won a um which won a golden award for its category so i i actually i literally have a gold trophy because i was in that documentary i have my hundred thousand subscriber plaque from mm. youtube 
Um, I have all these other things, and they're all literally in the closet. Um, but my uh, debug indie game award uh, plaque sits uh, firmly on my wall in the background of my videos. So I'd, I'm very proud of that one. That's lovely. That's yeah, awesome. for Alistair and I, and we, and we both got one too. So it's not like I didn't have to break it in half or anything. <laughs> snap it! I saw it actually. Was it? Uh, I watched the video. Was it actually the award that you go to snap in half on stage? Man? <laughs> I would have for him. No, it was. Um, <laughs> It, uh, it was the and they told us in advance, uh, just like with anything else, they told us in advance, like, like, we'll give you the one. But if you want a second one, then then you can work through uh, whoever whoever makes the awards uh, frame frame a game, I think. Yeah, it's literally it's literally called frame a game and you can get, you know, you can get your favorite video game framed, I suppose, if you'd like. Uh, but oh, they nice. did the awards. So it's like, well, well, we'll give you this one on stage. If you if you want a second one, just contact the company. They'll send you a second one. Um, since I live in the U.S., he actually, you know, his address is in the U.K., free shipping for him. I was like, well, I'll take yeah. this one home with me. And then, um, and then I'll, I'll arrange it so they ship you one. So yeah, at least, at least, you, have it at least you don't have to send it back and forth like every six months. Like you have it for a few months, I'll have it for a few months. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He kept the envelope. They, they had the envelope with like, and the winner is. So I was like, you can keep that one. I, I don't mind. Yeah, he likes having. You know, I, I think he likes having those uh, in his room. He does that with um, when your game is featured on Evercade. Uh, they will also you know send you a shadow box of, with your game on it and everything. So yeah, That's fun. So uh, you have a love of uh, retro cereal as well. Um, which is actually developed into a game, Serial Calf, where you play as yourself, as well as a book on retro serial. That's um, true. Tell us all about this. You know, I've always been, I am, as, I am as nostalgic for breakfast cereal as I am video games. It was just such a uh, big part of my youth growing up. Um, and like video games, not that I got out of it, mm. but it wasn't until I had my own children walking down the cereal aisle when I was like, I don't remember that cereal. I don't remember that one. Oh, they still make that? Cool. I mean, before, I mean, yeah, I'd go down the cereal aisle and I might buy the, um, at least here in the United States, we have things like frosted mini wheats. I might buy the occasional box of that, you know, or Apple Jacks is a favorite of mine too, you know, things like that. But I never thought about, you know, the other cereal that came about and it just had that wave of nostalgia of all of these great, mostly licensed cereals that, you know, we had in the U.S. growing up that, that just don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's what I started thinking about that. I was like, oh, I, I still, and it's funny, I never eat it for breakfast. It's more of a late night snack or I just finished editing a video. So I'm going to watch my own video back before I post it. That's when, that's when I, the, uh, the cereal bowl gets uh, pulled out of the cupboard there. But when it came about that I had a, um, I had a game I could edit. And that was the whole idea behind the name Rigged Games was I rig mm. them. I modify them. I hack them. That's kind of where the name came. Up. And my last name is literally Riggs. So it kind of mm. dates back to, you know, the medieval times. If, if you're a blacksmith, your last name is Smith. If you're a baker, your last name is Baker. Well, I, I modify video games. I rig them to my advantage. So I guess I guess my last name's Riggs. Uh, what happened was I had a couple of homebrew games that had existed previously as something else, but I had the rights to change the graphics and make it my own game and still sell it at conventions. And that's where Show Cafe came about. Um, there was a previous version called Beer Slinger, where you're at a bar serving beer. Mm. So I was like, well, you know, like here in the US, we have Tapper and we have Root Beer Tapper mm. for the children. I was like, well, you know, we can have Beer Slinger and then I can make the cereal cafe game where you can you're you're selling breakfast cereal. And I figured because I'm the I'm the fan of cereal, I'll put myself in that one just for fun. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and the book the book came about only because I um we have all of these books about um like like toys of the 80s and video games of the 80s and the cartoons and the movies of the 80s. But breakfast cereal becomes one of those things where once you start talking about it, you're like, ah, you know, uh, at least here in the U.S., we'll be like, oh, we will like remember remember Smurf Toast Crunch or not Smurf Toast Crunch. Like we're like, remember Smurf Berry Crunch or um, like, hey, whatever happened to that? Like, wasn't there like a strawberry shortcake cereal? What about that Nintendo cereal that had like Mario on one side and Link on the other, Zelda on the other? 
you know, it, it becomes that part of that conversation. So um, I was like, you know, if anyone's going to be the one to do it, it'll be me. So um, is it completely self-published? I would like to put it on Amazon sometimes. It's very easy to publish books on Amazon. But it's also very easy for me just to write the book, which I did in like a three-day weekend. It was during the pandemic. Mm. And I was like, well, I'm going to be here anyway. So I wrote the entire book over a three-day weekend. And I have a friend of mine who is an insane cereal box collector. I have a nice collection of cereal boxes, but his is way better, way bigger than mine. And he was happy to uh, take the photos for me to provide the photos. And that's kind of what I had in mind it was more of a coffee book style where it's like, you know, one page is a giant box of cereal. And then here's a bunch of text about it. Knowing full well, nobody's actually going to read the words. There are words there just in case. And um, and then yeah, I just went through a self-publisher. We have a publishing company here in the U.S. that anybody can use, mostly for comics. But they can do comics. They can do magazines. They can do manga. And um, so I just kind of, you know, I'm, I'm terrible with business. I need to be better at business. But I do the thing where it's like, okay, if I buy this many books and I have to pay for it up front, if I sell 30 of them, then I'll break even. Yeah. So I just, have to, <laughs> just kind of have to work ahead. But then it's, it's, but I do the same with the video games too. Like the video games I make, you know, I um, oftentimes I'll put them together myself. I'll buy my own parts. I'll, um, you know, I no longer have to destroy old video games like we used to um, back in the day. But I use, I use brand new flashboards. I use new shells. I have to get all the paper and everything too, you know, but I, you have to pay for it all up front. So it's, it's money out of my pocket up front. But after I sell so many of them, okay, now I'm broke even. And then any extra money that comes in, I'll just use it to buy more parts to make more video games. And it's what lets me uh, travel around. It's the hobby that pays for itself. Yeah, it's got to be something you're really passionate about. It's not, you know, you can't do that for the money. It's got to be something that you just love doing. And, no, yeah, hopefully that, you'll that make something right. you won't lose money. <laughs> yeah, well, especially with anything that involves like uh, like circuit boards yeah. and computer chips. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of markup there. I mean, you're you're barely walking away with like an extra for you know uh, uh, like a like a Milky Way candy bar or something yeah. <laughs> to get out of after you know once once the profits come in. Yes, hundred percent. You can't you can't be doing anything like that for for the money because it's not there. Well, you know, you talked about putting yourself into the the cereal game. You also give your uh, your buyers a chance to get into a video game as well on um, Yeah Yeah BBs. Now that came out on the Dreamcast, right. but you also offered to program buyers into the NES version of the game as well, which I think is quite cool. So, what's kind of the story behind that game, and where did that idea come from to put the uh, the players in there? Well, that one came about with. Um, I've worked very closely with Mega Cat Studios since before they were Mega Cat Studios. And Mega Cat Studios is one of the premier um, uh, indie companies here in the United States. They do retro. They also do modern. Um, the people behind Mega Cat Studios are heavy into retro. Yeah. Like that's that's their passion. If they could just do retro, they would just do retro. But they also understand that um, putting games on Steam, on Xbox, that's what pays the bills. That's what pays their company. And it's a very small team. I've, I've visited the studios before. It's a very small team of people. But they love the retro side of things. Um, before Mega Hat Studios, they had a homebrew NES game that was in super limited quantity. They only made 40 of them. They sold them exclusively at one video game convention for charity. That's the only time it was ever available. And I have a copy of it, and it's very fun. And that's when the whole rigged games idea is like, hey, you know, do you have any games that are laid around that aren't making money? You know, can I basically buy the rights off of you, like buy the ROM? And I'm going to change everything about the game. I just want the game's code and I can change the graphics. I can change the color. I can change the text. I can change the title screen. I can do everything else. And that's when Mega Cat Studios, who, you know, I've, I've always worked with and I've always promoted their games on my channel and I love what they do. That's kind of when they said, we don't, we don't typically do this, but let us code you a game from scratch and then you can do whatever you want with that. And one of the things I wanted was a game that was a two player simultaneous game because I have, and I don't do it anymore, but there were times where somebody would reach out to me saying, Hey, look, I know you can't do this. And I know you legally can't sell it. 
but can you make me a copy of Super Mario Brothers where you put me as Mario and my wife as Luigi? And I'd say, well, you can't because Mario and Luigi use the same graphics. If you change one, you change both. And so many two-player games on the NES are like that. So I wanted a game that had two distinctly different characters that you could edit. And that was really the reason why Yaya Bebas 2 came about was I wanted a game where I could edit it for those purposes. So I could change the graphics. I could put, you know, two, like, you know, like some, like, uh, like a boyfriend and girlfriend or a, a you know, a, a father and their son or something as the two characters. Um, and then the rest of the game is still fun too. I really enjoy that game. I mean, uh, I hope I'm, I'm biased a little bit, of course. Uh, but that's, that's how that came about. And then even on the switch version, that's when we realized, wait a minute, we can put multiple copies of the ROM on there. So um, if you have like, yeah, yeah, Bebas two on switch, you can play as the default characters just just for fun. I, I love the Jiangxi like style. You know, I just love those characters, so that's why they're the main characters. But like, if you type in the Konami code, then you'll play as my wife and I as you know player one and player two. Oh, so awesome. there's things that's you can do. Yeah, like on the Switch, I think the Steam version does it too. There's a couple of other codes in there too, but um, so things like that. So really, the game came about was because I wanted a game that I could edit to personalize and customize it for people. But the, the game by the game by itself by default works just fine too. And then of course when you customize it, sure I can shoot them the ROM, but then I can also put it on you know as their own cartridge. And I've I've gifted a few at conventions too, like for other people's YouTube channels. So it's always kind of fun to see their the look on their face when they realize, oh, this is you know it's it's a it's a one of a kind. It's a it's a one of one. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on a Pixel Game Squad. Yep, uh, yep, yep. With um oh god, uh, Riff and oh what's the other guy's name? Yeah, Ricky. Oh, Ricky, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw when you did it for them as well, which is nice. really cool. So uh obviously as somebody who makes a lot of game hacks, repros, um, you know, and you mentioned that you buy the rights for them and stuff like that. What ethical considerations do you think are important in this space? Well, you, I mean, it's it's someone else's property. So, mm. I mean, that's also why I got to do um, indie games or, um, you mm. know, making my own homebrews or at least, you know, or working with a low tech or working with Mega Cat Studios was like, you know, er, in the early days, low uh, on the down low and stuff like that, you know, like I'm um, the hack that I think a lot of people still remember, like they'll they'll still ask if I have it is um, I hacked Burger Time to be Bob's Burgers, which is a very popular cartoon here in the United yeah. States. So I did that and um, they're like, oh, did you bring any of those? Can you sell those? I was like, I legally can't. And I kind of got to the point with my YouTube channel where it's like, okay, now it's the time where Nintendo might be knocking on my front door saying, hey, you know, mm. you sh- you can't be doing this, right? <laughs> so so in, in lieu of looking for a cease and desist, I was like, I better I better not do that anymore. But if I make my own video games, then that's totally fine. But there there has to be, you know, especially, you know, and, and, and people could argue, I suppose, with, you know, these old properties that Nintendo's not making any money on them. Um, it's still kind of theirs or it belongs to someone anyway, you know, and then even more so when it comes to somebody's, you know, work on homebrews or indie games, or it's like, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, yeah, definitely, definitely support the artist. And, and Nintendo are the ones that are generally most likely to come after you as well in, uh, in our experience. Oh, absolutely. Seen, yeah. Well, and it happens. <laughs> yeah. You hear about it several times a year. It's like, oh, this, uh, you know, somebody made a, uh, a Pokemon, uh, you know, th- this game heavily inspired by Pokemon, you know, it's, it's a Pokemon love letter and Nintendo shut it down. I'm like, well, yeah. of course they did. It's, you know, there someone else is making money on Nintendo's property, you know, or something like that. So, is it? It's it's all it's all for the right reasons. You know, I can't just show up and you know hear a hear a song that maybe didn't get as popular, then call it my own, and then someone else later on. Or you know, it happens to comedians all the time too. Like a comedian will steal a joke, and then they'll they'll be found out about it. So, yeah. don't want to be that guy. No, it's fair enough, and uh, especially in this uh, connected age where everything's online. Oh, now, every, uh, everyone yeah. knows everything. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> that was one of the things that happened with um, BioForce Ape, which mm-hmm. is a homebrew where 
uh, there was a not a homebrew. It was a um, it was a it was a prototype. It was a it was a found discovered uh, prototype. It was in the back of magazines. You could there, there was reviews for it. It never came out for the United States. It never came out on the NES. Mm. Uh, a game called Bioforce Ape. So somebody made their own homebrew, but called it the prototype. Like, oh my god, I can't, I can't believe it. I found it. Here it is. And then like. A few months later, they actually found the real prototype, right. <laughs> proving the other guy was a liar. So I was like, you know, and that's um, which is also the how the name came about for Yaya Bebus two because there is no Yaya Bebus one. Right? Um, Yaya Bebus one is lost media. So I, I was like, you know what? And I'll I'll respect that, and I'll make the sequel to the game that doesn't exist. Well, and, you know, the, the last like ten years that you've been doing the uh, the indie games, I mean, I, I've noticed that the Dreamcast does get a lot of love on the homebrew scene. The NES as well, you know, the Mega Drive slash Genesis seems to get a lot of noticed. Not so much on platforms like the Super Nintendo, it seems, or you know, the N sixty four doesn't seem to get quite as much love. I mean, have you kind of noticed this trend of like certain systems coming into vogue? For example, like the Game Boy Advance seems to be getting quite a bit of homebrew recently. And is there anything you kind of feel we should be looking out for? Any systems that you think might be getting more homebrew? brew in the future you know what's funny i didn't realize how big the dreamcast homebrew scene was until yeah yeah beavis 2 came about mm. on the dreamcast um where i just had it on nes that was good enough for me and then i have a friend of mine here in the united states um who can put who can put them on a dreamcast disc so that's why i was like oh you know what let's just well sure we can we can he was like i can do 20 of them i got parts perfect so we just did 20 of them we could just kind of a low key hey if you want it on dreamcast here it is and then it was because of that that uh, Wave Studios reached out to me saying, well, 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 wait a minute, you have a game on Dreamcast? How come we didn't know about this? And I was like, well, it's on NES, but we just have to run on Dreamcast. It is no big deal. Um, that's when Wave Studios was like, oh, actually, we can, you know, we can actually produce that for you, right? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I didn't realize how big it was. I think it might be more bigger in the in the UK than the US, but mm. it's still a very big fan base here in the United States. Um, NES, for sure. I think, again, it's my it's my favorite system growing up, and I think it's also the favorite system of many people my age growing up. So it's easy to have that, you know, that love for it to produce a game on on the NES because that was, you know, that was your passion. And you're, there's also creativity through limitations. So you can only have so many colors. You can only have so much for graphics. Uh, you can only do so much with uh, with sound. So you don't have so you're not forced to go overboard uh, to compensate for, you know, what the Super Nintendo can produce or what the um, even the Mega Drive to an extent. And there's a lot of great indie games coming out for Mega Drive recently. Yeah, but yeah, but when it comes to like Nintendo sixty four, I think it just becomes that extra, that extra bit of knowledge that maybe I don't, I don't, I know I don't have it, but um, if somebody does have like some three D, uh, computing, especially dealing with the Nintendo sixty four, a lot of this, I played a sixty four game the other day that was just, um, it was a Game Boy game, but was also ported to the Nintendo 64 because you can do that right, now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's things like that too. But I mean, I will, I would love to see more Nintendo 64 support um, for, for the indie homebrew scene, but it also comes down to price too, yeah. uh, because you know, how much does it cost to produce a Dreamcast disc versus producing a Nintendo 64 cartridge? I mean, even blank Nintendo 64 cartridges, you're looking at like $30. Yeah. Um, just yeah. like, you know, just like that. So, you know, Dreamcast is already wonderful. You can do a lot with the Dreamcast, and I, that, it comes down to that price. You know, they find that magical price point where then it also makes it affordable to the person purchasing the game versus buying a brand new, like, hey, here's a Game Boy game on Nintendo 64, not knocking the idea, but you're also paying Nintendo 64 prices for a Game Boy game. Yeah, that you makes know, it's sense. Hard to, hard, hard, to, hard to come up with that, but I, w- I would love to see more 64 support. You know, and and, um, and like you said, uh, uh, Game Boy Advance is still... Um, is still fun, it, you know, and and portable, and I think it's cheap enough. I don't know. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of support for Game Boy Advance for all the all the crazy Pokemon hacks and all that too. 
Um, I don't know, but I, w- I would love to see, I'd love to see homebrews on the GameCube, but I don't know yeah. if it's even feasibly possible just because the GameCube discs are so unique. Yeah, it's interesting. I think also there's maybe something about the Dreamcast that it was kind of a bit of an underdog, you know, a system that was never, the full potential didn't feel like it was explored back when oh, it came out. absolutely. And yeah. even with the Atari Jaguar, I mean, that's got quite an active homebrew scene, bizarrely, you know, a lot of stuff tends to come out. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Oh, well, and there's there's a huge homebrew scene for, um, here in the United States, there's a huge, I mean, it takes up like eight tables or something, or maybe even more than that. Uh, but at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, all of the great uh, new games that come out every year for the Atari 2600, the yeah. ColecoVision, the Intellivision, um, it's just, it, it blows my mind. And there's people who just go by every year and they just literally just, they show up and they buy one of each because you never know, you know, it's just, it's uh, it's it's fun to see. But I mean, you could say the same thing. Well, the, there's only a couple of homebrews available for TurboGrafx-16. I know TurboGrafx-16 is a very, it's a very niche system um, just about anywhere in the world, maybe outside of Japan, but it's... I, I love seeing the creativity. Anytime I hear that there's like a new homebrew for like Jaguar, I'm like, yeah. what? Really? That's that's insane. I love it. And I love to hear it, you know, because th- th- those are the people who are doing it for the hobby, not for the money, because they know they're not going to make enough money to you know, maybe even break <laughs> even on that versus, you know, doing it for Dreamcast or something else. Is that anything you'd ever explore, like, you know, putting one of your games to TurboGrafx or the, or the Jaguar, for example? I mean, if there was a possibility, I looked into it. I asked I asked about uh, TurboGrafx-16 because I have mm. a friend of mine who did. And but it involves it involves another another source of coding for it or something like that. So I mean, can it be done? The answer is always yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I also don't know. I, again, you're, I'm probably you know I'd probably make enough to sell ten. Yeah. You know, and then that, by that <laughs> point, you know, I'd be I'd be losing money doing that. But at least I would have one. And so those ten people like would be that, very grateful to have a new game on well, the system. Old, they may be. They they, they <laughs> certainly may be. Uh, uh, there's uh, there's a there's a market for anything. It just depends on you know what that market is. But something like that might be more you know, funded for the passion and then, you know, maybe the game actually makes money on, on steam yeah. more than anything else, who knows, you know, or, or maybe even on mobile, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say one way or another, but um, yeah, that's, that's all that community aspect where it's like, Oh, I made this thing. And, um, and we also completely understand too, that, you know, there's gamers, which is like the white spectrum. And then a very small sliver of that's like the retro gamers. And then even less of that are the people who are into um, indies and especially homebrews where, you know, we also understand too, it is a labor of love. It is, it is a baker going out there making the best cake possible, taking five years to make this glorious cake. And somebody comes by with their index finger and swipes a bit of frosting <laughs> on their tongue and says, yeah, that's pretty good. And then walks away. You know, it's just like <laughs> you're doing you're doing it because you love it. You're not doing it because you're trying to change the world. Yeah, absolutely, John. That's uh, that's a great point. And obviously, you know, you can be very proud of the work you've done and uh, continue to do as well. I mean, anything coming up from you in terms of like new titles and new stuff on the YouTube channel? Anything in the pipeline we should look out for? Yeah, um, I'm going to be starting my I'm, I'm shooting for April. Um, I'm shooting for April to do the Kickstarter for the Choo Choo Mimic CIB copies of the NES card. Um, I'll, I'll have a couple of them. I, like I said, I have the loose cards cause I can make those myself, but I would like to do something with the box, with the manual. Um, I make my own air fresheners. That's kind of a side hobby that I do. Just that, that's another thing. And that's just purely for fun. Nice. Um, but you know, something I can, I can make like a mimic, you know, I can make a treasure chest air freshener that smells like an old cedar chest in a dank cave. Um, you know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of fun for me too. You know, I have, I have an arcade one. I have one that smells like a 1980s arcade with menthol cigarettes and wood paneling and, you know, oh, a rusty nice. gumball machine. <laughs> and it smells just like it. I think it does anyway. And other, other people say the same too. So um, looking forward to that for uh, for April. Um, I'm almost completely finished. I'm, there's one stage that crashes the entire game, um, but I'm almost completed. I have another, 
Uh, my next homebrew is coming out for the Mega Drive of all consoles. Um, and it's going to be just like a fun kind of stare. It, 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 it dates back to my church days where um, I would try to impress the ladies by carrying like as many stacked chairs as I could to prove how strong I was. <laughs> so it plays a little like that where I, I have to I have to put away all the chairs. But the more the more chairs I can stack to carry to I, I walk slower, but then I'll, I'll earn more points that way. So um, that should be coming out later this year. Um I don't know if I had, I don't I don't even know what an ETA would be if it's if that would be a summer thing maybe maybe even a fall thing at this point but but later in the year we'll uh, we'll do that one for the Mega Drive um, and I just recently of all things um, I just started training to be a professional wrestler so you might see me in the ring oh, maybe even uh, you know, I'll, I'll 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 do my best uh, Big Daddy impersonation there and you know <laughs> carry the reins for the UK there I suppose I don't know we'll see I mean that's that's more of a pipe dream that's more of a that's something that that literally just started maybe a couple of weeks ago where I was like, um, like, Oh, I can be a wrestler. I can do that. There's, there's a wrestling school nearby and I know the promoters and, um, I know a couple of the, the local, um, the local wrestler people is like, Oh, you could totally do that. You could totally do that. So I was like, yeah, that might be kind of fun. Just another, you know, just try to rule the world one random entertainment hobby at a time. Well, John, it sounds like you're an extremely busy guy. I'm not sure when you find time to sleep. You know, you do so much, but I'm glad that you did. I'm glad the passion burns so strong. So uh, thank you. best of luck with it all. And thank you so much for uh, taking a bit of your valuable time to come on and be our guest this week. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. And uh, there's always there's always some great video game conventions in the UK. So um, if you happen to find me at a UK convention, um, I'm very approachable. I look like myself, but taller. Fantastic. Nice. Yeah, we'll hook up for a beer. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you then, John. All right. Take care, man.